this month on security management highlights. The government put $7 billion towards the build-out with the expectation that it would eventually become self-funding. A network for U.S. first responders was designed to improve communications during emergencies. National Security Editor Lily Chapa stops by to discuss the effectiveness of FirstNet and whether it will be adopted. Plus, these were particularly alarming because they are our first known infiltration of U.S. critical infrastructure by a nation-state hacking group. Recent cyber attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure have officials alarmed, but can the government come up with a viable solution to the problem? Cybersecurity Editor Megan Gates explains. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. A multi-billion dollar broadband network reserved for first responders was designed to address emergency communications issues during crises. But will public safety stakeholders adopt it? National Security Editor Lily Chapa is here to tell us more. Hi, Lily. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. You begin your article with two stories that illustrate just how ineffective the current first responder network in the United States can be. Tell us what happened. There have been a couple incidents recently, one which really made the rounds about how firefighters had their data throttled by Verizon while they were responding to California fires earlier this year. Another big example, though, is one that I read about in a report, which describes a car chase through Los Angeles back in 2015, where a guy stole a car at gunpoint, drove across L.A. for 45 minutes, and then ended up taking people hostage at a restaurant. As you could expect, at this point, there were all kinds of first responders at the scene, from cops that came from several cities to the highway patrol and SWAT. They were all surrounding this restaurant, but there was just one problem— They had no way to communicate with each other since they all use different channels and technology. So this is just one illustration of the shortcomings with the current network. But the federal government has attempted to come up with a solution to public safety communication problems. Tell us more about FirstNet, what it is, when it was created, and where it now stands as far as its implementation. Sure. So the idea of FirstNet was first adopted back in 2012, and it's basically a broadband network on a spectrum that only first responders can access. The government put $7 billion towards the build-out with the expectation that it would eventually become self-funding. AT&T was awarded the 25-year contract, which allows them to build out this new spectrum and also use it for commercial purposes, depending on availability. Right now, FirstNet is operable at about 2,500 sites across the country, and another 10,000 are in the works. But just because it's live doesn't mean that first responders are using it. So as you mentioned, there are some problems, even though this supposed solution has come to bear. What are some of the biggest issues facing the current network that FirstNet supposedly will solve? Well, both of the stories I mentioned earlier really illustrate the issues with the current first responder communications. It's not uncommon for commercial wireless services to be overloaded, especially at a crowded place or during a crisis like what happened to the California firefighters. And if multiple departments need to communicate, like during the L.A. hostage situation, there are often compatibility challenges as well. So even if FirstNet is implemented and rolled out, one of your sources said that there may be a bit of slowness in first responders adopting it. Who was that and what did he say? I spoke with Mark Goldstein, who authored Government and Accountability Office reports on FirstNet. 
and he found that even existing multi-department communications mechanisms face training and operability challenges, and that won't necessarily go away with FirstNet. He also found that emergency response exercises often don't include a hands-on communications component. Basically, first responders choose the path of least resistance for emergency communications, and just because there's a new technology available doesn't mean they're more willing to adopt it or use it appropriately. Yes, very true. And as you mentioned, AT&T was awarded a multi-billion dollar contract to build out FirstNet. So has that come online anywhere at all? And is it being used? Yeah, it's online at about 2,500 sites across the country, but it's really too early to tell how many organizations are making the switch to FirstNet. Goldstein estimates that it will be competitively priced compared to normal wireless service. He points out that its usability, especially in rural areas, will have a big impact on its long-term success. And experts say there's no chance of it remaining self-funded for the long haul if it's not adopted by more first responders. Definitely. This is quite the interesting topic, especially given all the recent examples like the wildfires, which you also mentioned in your story. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Thank you so much, Lily. Thanks, Holly. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has taken steps to address recent attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure. But does the government go far enough to address these far-reaching vulnerabilities? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here to talk about about this important issue. Hello, Megan. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about this incident that you cover in your cybersecurity department for November, in which seven Iranians were indicted for attacks on critical infrastructure and financial institutions in the United States. Why were these hacking attempts particularly alarming to U.S. officials? Great question, Holly. So these were particularly alarming because they are our first known infiltration of U.S. critical infrastructure by a nation state hacking group. So it was a very big deal. They found out that between August 28th, 2013 and September 18th, 2013, an Iranian hacker connections to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard, he gained unauthorized access to the supervisory control and data acquisition systems of the Bowman Avenue Dam in Rybrook, New York. And so using this access, the hacker was able to get information about the status and operation of the dam, including water levels, temperature, and status of the sluice gate that controls water levels and flow rates. And what was especially concerning to investigators after the fact, after they realized what had happened, was that the hacker's level of access would have allowed him to operate the floodgates of the dam, um, to open them. That could have caused huge problems for Rybrook, New York. Fortunately for the dam, the floodgates were disconnected manually, so they would have required physical access to open them, and they were disconnected for maintenance work. And so, yeah, this was a big deal, and then they were able to fortunately determine, you know, how the hacker gained access to the system and then actually press charges against this individual, which was very rare, and the first instance that we have of this happening in the United States. Yes, absolutely. And you write that since the infiltration at the dam, although fortunately the damage wasn't as bad as it could have been, the U.S. has made some progress on addressing cybersecurity threats to critical infrastructure. So what are some of those efforts at the Department of Homeland Security? Yeah, well, to begin with, DHS has now designated critical infrastructure verticals. Each of those verticals, they have information sharing and analysis centers, ISACs, so they can share information with each other and be better prepared for threats that are out there. And also, 
also DHS has engaged with the private sector, which is important for critical infrastructure because most critical infrastructure in the United States is owned and operated by the private sector. It's not done by the government. So they really need private sector cooperation to basically accomplish anything. In addition to that, DHS has set up some additional information sharing centers. So we have the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. Um, They're doing more testing on critical infrastructure to make sure that it's prepared for cyber attacks. And also most recently this year, DHS finally released a cybersecurity strategy for 2018 to 2022 that created the National Risk Management Center, um, which will focus on creating a cross-cutting approach to defending U.S. critical infrastructure. Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, she spoke over the summer about the new center and said it will employ a more strategic approach to risk management, born out of the reemergence of nation-state threats, our hyperconnected environment, and our survival and its need to effectively and continually collaborate within the private sector. You've mentioned a lot of efforts on the part of DHS, but despite this progress, some experts did share with you that water and wastewater systems may remain vulnerable to cybersecurity attacks. So what are some examples that illustrate this vulnerability? And who did you talk to? What did they say? Yeah, so as someone who's been, you know, researching and reporting on the cybersecurity space for a few years now, it really seems that most of the effort is focused when it comes to critical infrastructure and protecting it from cyber attacks is really focused on the power system, so the electric grid especially, but that leaves maybe other systems unaddressed, like wastewater and water treatment facilities, you know, which are essential to survival. We can't live without water. It's it's necessary. And so I got to thinking more about this after in Washington, D.C. recently, there was a boil order issued um, after a valve in the system was was left open and it could have allowed contaminants to get into the water system. And so while the D.C. government was addressing this problem, uh, they had to issue a boil order for most of the District of Columbia. So you had to boil all of your water. People were buying bottled water and it was a really big deal. And it made people really think about what would happen if our you know, water system didn't function the way that it was supposed to. And so after that happened, I interviewed Chris Grove. He's director of industrial security at Indigy. He sort of agreed with me thinking that it's overlooked. He's been speaking at events about vulnerabilities to wastewater and water treatment facilities for the past year. And he says that he thinks that there's a misperception that these systems are protected from cyber attacks because they're air gapped, uh, meaning they're not connected to the internet. But that's not always the case, especially with advances that we've had in technology, where, you know, owners and operators of these systems, they want to be able to collect metrics, like how many gallons of water were treated in a day, or can we update our system? And doing all of those things means you're introducing new technology that could potentially breach that air gap and make the system overall vulnerable. Yes, water is definitely important. It is the source of life. And given these concerns voiced by Grove, are there any efforts that the U.S. government is undertaking to protect the cybersecurity of waste and wastewater systems? Well, along with general outreach to the sector, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency recently released a cybersecurity guide for states, and it actually had explicit information in there for water and wastewater utilities. And it sort of identified some of the major challenges for this sector when it comes to addressing cybersecurity. And those were lack of resources for information technology and security specialists to assist with creating a cybersecurity program. So to help these facilities, the EPA created a worksheet to create an effective cybersecurity program. It walks, you know, facility owners and operators through the steps of how to do this, like auditing your IT systems and identifying vulnerabilities, 
implementing secure remote access practices, and improving physical security of IT equipment, along with conducting cybersecurity training for people who are working in your facility. And then in addition to this, I was speaking with Chris Grove, and he, in his talks, he makes a series of recommendations for these facility owners and operators, including like any good custodian of data, you know, mapping your system to determine what assets are within it. Um, and how they're most vulnerable, and then considering introducing a monitoring system to detect when an infiltration occurred, such as what happened with the Bowman Dam attack. Yes, that worksheet sounds like a great resource, and any listeners out there who want to check it out can visit SM online to read it. Megan, thank you so much for stopping by the podcast. Thanks for having me, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. If you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Until next time, bye-bye.